Hello and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. Can you imagine an ad-free web? Well, that's what our portfolio company, Scroll, is hoping to power. Last fall, I spoke with Scroll co-founder Sachin Doshi about how his company is working to create a better web experience for everyone. So today I'm here with Sachin Doshi. He is one of the founders of Scroll, which is a Samsung Next portfolio company. And uh, Scroll is doing an interesting thing in the digital media world. Um, why don't you tell us about it? What are you doing? Sure. Uh, Scroll is a consumer subscription platform. Um, the basic idea is the consumer pays a monthly fee. Standard price is four ninety nine. Um, and everywhere that you browse to great media content across any of our partner sites, however you get there, whether that's going to the site or discovering the content in Twitter or any of the social media environments, you get an ad-free private version of the page. So the idea is to create this great uh, experience across all the top media sites in the world where you're no longer distracted by pop-ups and interstitials and pre-rolls and trackers and the things that have created this kind of distrust across the web are suppressed. And because the consumer is paying $4.99 a month and we share most of that money back with the publishers, the publishers are actually making more money than they would have made from advertising. So we think it's a great way to bridge the gap between the frustration of the experience on media sites on the web and the publisher's own challenges in making money from advertising. Yeah, so I come from the digital media world. I have written for a number of digital media publications in the past, including TechCrunch and GigaOM and some others. You know, I'm keenly aware of the frustration that users or readers have when they go to these sites and they're hit with a pop-up or they're hit with an autoplay ad or, you know, whatever bad experience comes from that. So let's talk about the consumer experience first. So basically, you're stripping out all ads as long as they're a subscriber. Is that the idea? We are actually not stripping it out. The okay. way that the partnerships work is that the publisher recognizes that you're a Scroll subscriber. Where Again, this is how we make sure that Scroll works wherever you're discovering the content. The publisher uh, detects that you're a Scroll subscriber. They serve an ad-suppressed version of that page. That's basically every ad format that you would normally think of. There are some nuances to that in the sense that if you're, for instance, reading a uh, a review of a product, the publisher can still put an Amazon link at the bottom of the review. So there are formats like that that are revenue generating for a publisher that are still okay because they're not actually causing any harm to the consumer experience. But anything that really distracts from the consumer experience is suppressed. And then on top of that, a lot of the third-party trackers that are creating, again, a lot of this distrust around the web – for the experience on the web are suppressed by the publisher as well. Right. So a lot of people try to get away with this by signing up for ad blockers, having extensions that essentially suppress these type of things. And then you're hit with a pop-up that says, we notice you're running an ad blocker, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if they just pay $5 a month, they'll be able to get a bucket of all this great content. And it works on desktop and mobile through the one uh, product. So, you know, ad blockers work fairly well on desktop, despite the fact that uh, exactly what you said, publishers are now creating friction even for that experience. Scroll works not only on desktop, but on mobile, within social browsers on mobile, etc. What I'm curious about is how you get you know, this bucket of media partners on board, yep. because you have a good number of them and uh, a lot of great names in the digital media space. What was that process like? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, one of my co-founders, Tony Hale, came from Chartbeat, has been in media for a long time, has built up 
quite a bit of credibility amongst media partners. I came from music, doing something similar on the music side, both from record labels and at Spotify, understood kind of what some of the pain points were going to be, especially coming from not having leverage to start. So we were able to kind of put together a story really based around the data, right? So we did a lot of research before even going to the publishers in terms of understanding not only what their business looked like and what the actual numbers were, but also what we would pay out in a ton of different scenarios, built a model that we actually share with the publishers and say, go to town, figure out what this looks like for you. So we came kind of very well prepared to tell this story and to get publishers as comfortable as was reasonably possible. The story itself, we think, is is a no-brainer. The only question is, you know, when are you willing to do the work to integrate us? And for that, there's, you know, there's the standard hustle. So we were just able to kind of push through that narrative, through having done a lot of the diligence ahead of time to convince a group of publishers who I think are really looking forward, right? They're in a position to say, I need to find sustainable revenue streams over the next few years. This makes a lot of sense. Let's go. Right. You know, it sounds like $5 isn't a lot, especially if you're spreading it out across, you know, a couple dozen different publishers. So number one, like how do the economics work? Yeah. And in fact, I can start by saying the economics, what we share out of the $5 up to three fifty per subscriber, not only uh, substantially beats the 15 publishers, 300 sites that we have today, but would beat all of the top publishers in total. So today, based on a lot of the research we did, we see that the entirety of the U.S. publishing industry that we would want in this network is making at most $2.50 per user per month in advertising. That's across all of them. So just by paying out $3.50, we can beat the average by a minimum of 40%. And that's including not just the partners we have today, but all of the partners we would want in the future in the scroll network. That's at the average level. And the way that we pay out is based on the time the user spends with the content. So another thing that we were eager to do early on was to try to move the model, the standard ad model, which is based on impressions and clicks, towards a what we think is a more sustainable model for creating quality content. Um, so we said, look, time has its own challenges, but we believe that engaged time is a better metric than most of the other ones out there. Uh, so we split that pool primarily based on the amount of time you spend with a given partner. And that seems to be a shift that's happening across, you know, multiple publishers in looking more at how engaged the audience is as opposed to just like how many people showed up, clicked in and, you know, maybe dropped off, right? Yeah, I mean, I think they've been, look, I mentioned that uh, Tony was the founding CEO at Chartbeat, so he's been pushing that way of looking at the world for a long time. Publishers are looking at that and have been looking very carefully at that, but it has been disconnected from their revenue model. And that hasn't necessarily changed yet. I do think, especially those publishers that are more subscription focused, probably look at it even more carefully as it relates to their subscription economics and uh, especially around engagement and retention. But the primary driver for revenue in this industry is still uh, advertising and that is disconnected from that engaged time, which is more of an editorial sort of focus today. Maybe we can talk about paywall yeah. uh, subscriptions and how that's changing in the media world and, and why that is such a big opportunity or a change that's happening or seems to be happening right now. I think increasingly as publishers realize that the ad economics are just not going to sustain their business, their newsrooms, et cetera, they're looking to new revenue streams and not surprisingly, subscription and membership is the is the first place that they would look. The challenge has been that to date, 
those kinds of offers are really only appealing to the top one to maximum 2% of a publisher's audience. More and more publishers are trying it. Very few have met with any real scale. You know, the Wall Street Journal is primary corporate card business, so they're able to sustain. New York Times has done well. But even the New York Times, as well as they've done, now I don't have the exact number to date, but let's say it's around 3 million subscribers. That's still less than 3% of their monthly unique audience. You know, the biggest brand in the business is still at a conversion of something like 3%. You're going to see more and more people try it. They're going to do it very carefully so that they're not necessarily crippling a lot of their potential ad revenue, but you'll see varying levels of sort of rigidity around what these paywalls look like, and you'll see people try it. You'll see publishers try it. I, it's unclear yet whether anybody can break through that seat, that 1% to 2% ceiling. I think most people are still trying the sort of the standard metered paywalls here, potentially membership with certain benefits there. The next year or two will be really interesting to see all these new paywalls, how what the ceiling is ultimately. You mentioned earlier that you come primarily from the music business. Um, what attracted you to news and sort of digital web publishing? I saw similarities. It's one of those things where if music is sort of has been my kind of emotional passion for most of my life, the industry of journalism and applying not the same playbook, but that knowledge to kind of solving this problem is more of an intellectual passion. Like how can you take what I and we learned in music extract what the similarities are and hope to apply it. And then the other one is a little bit more just uh, happenstance, which is Tony and I had known each other for a long time. Um, he'd been in the industry for a long time and he had no intention of ever working together necessarily, but he pulled me aside at some point as he was thinking about some of these things. We talk, spent a lot of time talking about it with uh, the two of us and our third co-founder, Kushal Dave, at some point just said, do you want to try doing this? And so, you know, it was a combination of the two things really. So actually, let's talk about the similarities a little bit. I think that there are some analogs. You know, I, I think back to the turn of the century and the early changes in the music business, where you know suddenly music was digital and people could find it anywhere, and then that sort of ate away at a lot of the value for the business model, which was primarily selling physical products. Yep. There's sort of a corollary happening in the media world where these companies are used to selling physical magazines or newspapers or whatever it is, the web sort of democratizes the ability to distribute information. And then they're caught scrambling to supplement these decreasing revenues. So is that it? Or is there more to it that you've seen in the evolution there? The challenges for the music business were fairly clear in terms of what kind of just completely disrupted their business the mp3 format and just the rapid availability through napster and then other peer-to-peer services in the wake of napster were clearly crippling um the business even the legitimate services namely itunes that came out fundamentally changed the way that the record business needed to operate even if that was the ultimate product rate of piracy started slowly going away unbundling the album was going to do damage in itself for various reasons, they weren't really able to accurately charge the amount of money they probably would have needed to for the hit singles to make up for the unbundling. So the, the business was going to change no matter what once you broke through that format. Piracy was the dramatic impact, but even just selling downloads would have been at a track level would have been a challenge for the old infrastructure anyway. So 
okay, the perfect analogy for what we're doing and what happened in media would be ad blocking, right? Ad blocking is happening in an unsanctioned manner. It is uh, affecting at least some portion of the industry's ability to make money. And the same way that first iTunes, but really then the legitimate streaming services came to create the best possible experience for music and get people to pay again. Yes, we're trying to build up a sanctioned version of an ad-free experience and really meet that need for users. So that would be like the sort of straight analogy, though. If you combine all of the reasons for why publishing is met with the challenges it has, it's a little bit different than the way, say, the recorded music business was. I think ad blocking is sort of the clearest analogy to piracy, but there are other factors for why publishers have struggled Changing distribution in the market. Changing distribution, also just lack of complete lack of scarcity. With music, it was still a fairly finite set of music that people wanted. They could just get it for free. So like if I wanted to in 2004, if I wanted a Beyonce track, I still wanted a Beyonce track. It wasn't like I couldn't get that for free. So I was supplementing it with something else. With media, it's a little bit different. You know, the content had been made available for free. But even if you put up a paywall, even if I can't reasonably get access to a particular article that I might otherwise be interested in, I can get that information somewhere else. So that has been as much of a problem as just the idea that it's illegally available, if you will. Right. So we talked a little bit about the economics from the perspective of the publishers. What else is a part of the sell? Yeah, I mean, so the core economics of Scroll being able to distribute more money than advertising is sort of the baseline of what we think we provide to publishers. Now, but on top of that, as we scale, we now have credit cards across, let's say, millions of users that are visiting all of these sites. Because we are not a paywall bundle, what this allows us to do is as these users are hitting publishers and hitting their paywalls, if they are hitting their paywalls, we now become a means for which those users can more easily subscribe to these publishers, especially the one or two that they really care about. So what happens like, okay, you're paying for scroll, you're paying $4.99 a month to get this ad-free experience across all the media sites on the web. You start to engage more. Everything that we've seen suggests that people, as they get a better experience on these sites, will engage more. The more they engage, the more they will start to become loyal to a certain set of brands. Now all of a sudden they're hitting paywalls. They can one-click upsell with scroll details uh, to that publisher. So the next part of, I think, what we we talk about a lot is this idea that not only can we generate more revenue than you would have made from advertising, we can actually help you drive subscriptions as opposed to cannibalizing them. We're additive on the ad side, and then we are going to create more conversion for you over time on the subscription side. So that's both a strategic and, of course, ultimately financial benefit that scroll provides. On top of that, On top of just the ad-free nature of the service, we do want to make the web more private. In that, we do want to give users control of their data, right? The idea fundamentally is that you should know where your data is being shared, but you should have control over that. So if you do want to, if somebody, let's say you're visiting a publisher in the network and they have something they can offer you and in exchange they say, we want to understand more of what you read. Are you willing to share that with us? And the user says, yes, I, I want this product you're offering. I'm okay sharing this data with you. We do provide means by which users can share their browsing data, for instance, with with the publishers in our network. So there are sort of values that we provide basically connecting the user with their publishers that they are most loyal to beyond just the sort of payment out of the pool. Ultimately, that should result in what is hopefully more and more revenue for those publishers, but it comes in different forms. Okay. Yeah, I find that interesting because in an ad world – 
the data that people share is allowing them to be targeted and retargeted uh, across the web. Um, but you're saying they have to explicitly opt in to share that data through your service if they're logged in. Yes. Now, Publisher is always for their own purposes. When you visit their site, they're going to look at some of the things that you're uh, you're browsing. But the idea of sharing that with third parties, that's verboten uh, in your sort of scroll network. What we're basically saying is if the publisher has a good reason to ask the user for their data, if they can really offer benefit in exchange for it, the user should be able to determine whether they want to share that data or not. Right now, the user doesn't get to make that choice. We're simply saying, let's let the user make that choice. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the consumer experience, but, you know, maybe let's get a little geeky and like, how do you actually enable that? Yeah. Especially across, you know, so many different sites or publishers and how you connect with them to ensure that, you know, if someone is logged into scroll, they don't have to explicitly opt into every yeah. site as they're, you know, scrolling through the web. The basics of it are that the publisher has some of our code on their page. So a user has our cookie in their browser. When a user visits a page, the publisher detects whether that cookie is active. So they are an active paying subscriber to scroll. If they're not, so if it's any other user or if it's a lapsed scroll subscriber, they serve the standard page. Mm -hmm. If they detect that a user is an active scroll subscriber, they have at that point either an ad-free kind of page that they – a canonical ad-free page, if you will, that they serve or they have code that suppresses the ads and the traffickers that we've specified in our agreements with them. And then they serve that version of the page. And then they load JavaScript, uh, which – does a couple things. One, and most importantly, it tracks the time, engaged time the user spends on the page so we can pay the publisher. Mm -hmm. And it also serves a little bar at the bottom of the page. We call it the scroll bar. That's designed to let the user know that they are on a scroll partner page and they're getting the value that they're paying for. But also it allows us to, along with the publishers, sort of deliver some value-added services while the user's on page. For instance, right now, if I was to visit any of our partner articles, I could click play and listen to that article. And while I'm listening, of course, we're tracking that time so that we're paying the publisher for that activity. That's really cool. And then, you know, obviously it seems like it would be simple to do that on desktop. How do you do that across desktop, mobile, when you talk about jumping into articles through social networks, yeah. et cetera? Is that more complicated? It's a little bit, but, you know, the team has done a pretty amazing job of making that onboarding as seamless as possible. We've gotten a lot of feedback in our beta users that onboarding is more seamless than they thought it would be. Hmm. If you sign up through desktop, you'll get an email sort of an hour later or so asking you to log in on mobile. Um, and then you go through a quick process, and that process is fairly simple. On Android, it's extremely simple. Uh, on iOS, it's a little bit more complicated, but it gets you to that point where it will work in the Twitter browser, etc. Where are you in terms of actually deploying this? You mentioned you have beta users, but um, have you gone fully live yet? No, we are still in beta. We are basically going through a couple of things. We're trying to learn first and foremost what elements of the value proposition resonate the most first on the front end so if you're if you don't know anything about scroll and you're now just learning about it what is it that really is the thing that drives you to say i want to try this then going down the funnel okay you're now trying it you're in the trial what are the elements of the service that resonate the most with you is it just the ad free how much of it is about privacy do we need to make it even more private or let you know which of our sort of value added features are working and not and then where if to the extent that we're losing anybody along the way where are we losing them are they not opening an email that they should be are they not visiting sites in our network so those are the questions we're trying to get a full grasp on along with a few other things that I'm we're not ready to talk about yet 
You've been doing this for how many years? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. So what's sort of the most surprising thing that you've learned along this journey? I mean, because you had to have come to this market and this idea with a couple of assumptions. Yep. Were there certain assumptions that were, you know, completely off base? Um, or were there certain things that you were surprised by along the way that uh, you didn't think about when you first launched this? I would say maybe not surprised, uh, but maybe a little bit more than we were expecting. There's just been a lot of just movement in the publishing industry. One of the things I didn't really talk about, or we didn't really talk about in sort of the comparison between the music industry and the publishing industry is that one of the advantages, depending on what position you're looking at it from, one of the advantages I think ultimately the record business had, uh, despite questions of whether it's fair or not, is that it is a very consolidated industry, especially at the label level. There are three now left three major labels, um, and then you have Merlin as a in, in the aggregator, and then you have kind of a mid to long tail after that. But you have a lot of the kind of uh, movement in the record business is now fairly static and you can do deals with these four entities along with music publishers and you're ready to go. Um, so it doesn't take much. Publishing is a, it's substantially more fragmented. B they're already a direct to consumer business in the way that the labels are not in the way that studios, at least until recently have not been. So they have a different way of looking at partners like scroll because they think about how they can drive their own business first and things like scroll or other similar services, maybe secondarily, there's just a different way in which we get slotted in than say the the way that the labels work. The labels uh, and publishers all have dedicated sort of teams that are designed around empowering services. The publishers aren't necessarily organized that way. You know, we work with different organizations in each of the different publishers. In some cases, it's revenue. In some cases, it's product. In other cases, it's business or strategy. So it's just all over the map in that regard. And the other part of that fragmentation and sort of what's happening is there's just a lot of swirl. There's a lot of consolidation at some level. There are companies that are effectively being bought for pennies on another level. So there's just an incredible amount of turnover in terms of the shape of the the industry. And I've seen this from the inside, even within a, a singular publishing group. Right. There's going to be a different product team on different properties, yep. for instance. And so I can imagine from a fragmentation standpoint, that makes it even more difficult. It makes it so that you have to be upfront. It has to be really, really easy to, to deploy because there aren't going to be dedicated teams that can, you know, work for several months on getting these types of things up and running. Yeah. And we've made that process uh, as quick and seamless as possible. But to your point, it's, it's not just who owns and maintains the the integration. It is who's responsible for even getting scroll in, into the product in the first place or even doing the deal or for making the decision to partner with scroll. And it's very different publisher to publisher. But on top of that, that fragmentation just leads to an ext- amount of swirl in terms of personnel, in terms of all of a sudden these two companies have merged or this company's bought this company. And that's going to continue for the next few years. So whereas the record business had really started to get some level of consistency, even though even if the revenue uh, was declining quickly, at least there were a handful of companies that you knew that you knew who to work with. And you knew that those companies were going to continue to drive the catalog value for the foreseeable future. That's much harder with publishing. And I would say that's probably the thing I was conscious of, but not expecting at that scale. There's got to be some level of skepticism in the media space, just because it feels like so many times they've been offered these opportunities to make more money, 
especially from larger platforms or players in the market, and then things don't go the way that they've been promised, right? And so to even have a startup come up and say, we can help you make more money, there's got to be a lot of questions about that. For sure. But that is something I'm very familiar with from the music business. So even having been on the label side, I, I developed a fair bit of that skepticism as more and more companies came through saying exactly that, right? Like we've got the future of the record business in our hands, like license your content to us and we've got it solved. And of course you saw a lot of those come in and do nothing. And so that level of skepticism, I understand, and it frankly is reasonable. So I think that I was more prepared for than more of the shape of the companies and the industry, the way, again, that every publisher looks different in terms of who makes what decisions and the the swirl within the industry. What's one controversial opinion you have that's really strongly held? As many of us grew up through the American public school education system, I'm a believer in republics more than true democracies, if you will. So I think the flaw in the old model, in the old media models where there were a limited set of voices is that they weren't necessarily democratic. So I believe in that there should be a scarce – scarce shouldn't mean small, but there should be some scarcity around the number of voices that speak to all of us. But those voices should be chosen democratically. We are effectively electing – and that's not just in in news media. That's in music too, right? I I don't want there to be 100,000 bands that are chipping away at this pool of money. I do think that – pop stars and rock stars are powerful cultural vehicles. I think that the idea of there being a handful of, in every sort of form of media or culture, a handful of voices that speak to all of us, effectively elected democratically by us is an extraordinarily powerful thing. And I think what the internet should enable is that that idea that we, get, we do get to choose who those voices are for us, as opposed to that just being incumbents just constantly forcing that down our throat. Well, you kind of see that in the music industry, right? Where for every person with a SoundCloud that gets a record contract, exactly, you know, there's hundreds, thousands that get no listens at all. A lot of people's issues with the way the music business used to operate is that they felt somewhat rightfully so that it was somewhat arbitrary who got access to the the machinery of stardom. To me, democratizing that doesn't mean that all of a sudden everybody gets a small audience. It means that collectively as music fans, we get to determine through a fair mechanism who those 10 stars at the moment are. And I feel like a model like that is something that I I believe could help our issues around media as well. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? You know, I played in a band in my 20s. Music has always been a passion. I don't I don't know that I would go back, but it is an, uh, it's obviously an area that will always be close to my heart. In general, kind of that collide of, of media and technology. Media meaning like the media of culture. Um, so sports is another area uh, that I'm passionate about. And, you know, there are sports that I care about that are in sort of a similar decline like baseball, for instance, right? So um, you see baseball in this decline, cultural decline. I don't know if that's salvageable, but I'm just saying that there are ways to maybe apply some modern thinking to kind of rejuvenate that brand. So something like that could be exciting. But theoretically, it would be in an area of media or culture that I care about it, that seems like it needs some redirection. If scroll becomes widely adopted, how will that change the world? How will that change the media landscape? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we hope that that means that consumers are getting the experience that they deserve across these great media sites. And it opens up just new ways of consuming content and making it easier and easier to learn more, to get more information in your diet. And to be able to, again, spend that time that you're spending on content 
more effectively. Obviously, you now have a sustainable revenue stream for more publishers. We want to then use that base of users, that ubiquity to drive additional revenue generating models for the publishers. We, As strong as we think that $5 model can be to sort of complement their ad revenue, we know that for a lot of publishers that that additional sort of high ARPU tier is going to be a, a huge part of their business and we want to be able to empower that. So just the basic idea that if Scroll is as successful as we believe it should be, then we have kind of reinvigorated the revenue model for publishing, which then means that they can start investing again in high-cost investigative journalism, the kind of stuff that at its core does power uh, our ability to make the right choices in our democracy. And that is the reason we started this. You know, We have 15 people in Scroll. All of them are totally bought into that mission. Everyone has another passion that they could be working on, but that is why we're doing this. And if we're not working towards that goal, we should be doing the other thing. Okay. Well, again, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to What's Next. We release a new episode every week, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or send us an email to podcast at samsungnext.com. Until next time. <laughs>